Hi everyone, Drew Pro here. On today's mini episode, we have a conversation with Max Lugavere, one of my dear friends, and we're talking all things nutrition. Specifically, we're talking about Max's approach to dairy consumption and the relationship between full fat dairy consumption and metabolic health. We're also chatting about how to actually make your coffee healthier, a topic that a lot of people are interested in, the benefits of saturated fat and how much value we should place on LDL levels, especially if they're elevated. We're also chatting about how salt can positively impact our health. Salt is one of those things that so many people demonize, but could it have beneficial properties for us? And lastly, we're talking about the power of movement and exercise for brain health. On these mini episodes, we take our popular podcasts from the past, we condense them down, and we pull top clips to make sure that if you miss the episode, you can still get tons of actionable takeaways. That's what we did today with our interview with Max Lugavere. I hope you enjoy. So let's talk about dairy for a second. You wrote about it in your new book. And uh, I've done a couple podcasts with my business partner about his views of dairy have changed. I've started incorporating like goat kefir in my diet regularly. I still, when I eat a lot of dairy or I eat in certain types of dairy, I still don't feel the best. I break out other things for some reason. Goat kefir, I tend to do really well in. Give me your perspectives and what has caused you to like have a little bit of a shift in how you see dairy. Yeah, so I I, st- I still tend to be very deliberate about my dairy consumption. I think it's dairy is not something that I want at every meal. And I think that one of the issues with modern ultra processed foods and 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 meals tend to be that there's just cheese added on everything, right? Like you can go to you can go into a one of these big chain restaurants and order a salad, the healthiest dish that most people are going to eat over the course of the day and it comes loaded with cheese on it, right? So typically I go I go dairy free, but um but I do think that dairy has unfairly been demonized in the especially in I think parts of the wellness world and you know I guess we can start with protein dairy is a pristine source of protein it consistently ranks as one of being one of the highest biological value biological value sources of protein that exists um, whether it's whey protein or, or casein whey is is an amazing highly bioavailable source of protein concentrated with essential amino acids and in particular leucine which is really important for muscle protein synthesis and halting muscle protein breakdown which is a really important way to maintain your lean mass as you age which which is which should be important to aging populations um so i i routinely will do whey protein now i'm not lactose intolerant and i do acknowledge that 75 percent of the global adult population is lactose intolerant so if dairy doesn't agree with you don't consume it um Whey protein isolate though is is almost 99.9% free of lactose and casein. So even among that I've seen people that are otherwise dairy sensitive, they tend to do really well with whey protein. For me, whey protein is great. It's a very um, satiating snack. It feels indulgent because you can find them in all kinds of really delicious flavors now, vanilla, creamsicle, what have you. And, and, and newer brands are, you can get it from grass-fed cows, which you don't really need to, to spend the extra money to get whey protein from a grass-fed cow because what a cow eats dictates primarily the the healthiness of its fat and whey protein is you know a, a protein shake is pretty fat free um, but you can get it you can find protein shakes sweetened with stevia and you can make a ton of different recipes with um with just whey protein i mean one of my favorite faux ice creams involves just whey protein and frozen berries just blend it all up and you get this really delicious um kind of faux ice cream 
you get the benefits of whey protein, you get the benefits of berry consumption, which is, we know, great for brain health, among other things. So I think whey is, is, is great. When zooming out, I also think that Greek yogurt is a, is a great product. I'm continually impressed that in a, in a cup of Greek yogurt, and let's just say fat-free, right, that you, get, you can get about 19 grams of protein in an 80 to 90 calorie serving. That to me is amazing. That's like a really fantastic and economical way to get very highly high biological value protein into your diet. Um, again, provided you're not sensitive to, to dairy. And then when you go to full fat dairy products like full fat Greek yogurt, cream, you're also getting a slew of really unique and probably important fat soluble antioxidants, which you lose by the way, when you, when you go fat free or reduced fat. So I reviewed this actually, this one paper that um, quantified the, the amount of vitamin K2 in various dairy products. And you lose it when you go for f- low fat or fat free. Um, but in, in dairy products like cream, you get a significant amount of vitamin K2. You get about 88 micrograms of vitamin K2 in a single tablespoon serving. And vitamin K2 is a, is a, it's sort of an underappreciated nutrient. Most people, when they think of vitamin K, they think of vitamin K1 which is involved in blood clotting. And very few people, if, if any people in Western society is, are, are deficient in vitamin K1, and you, and you typically know because you're prone to bleeding. Um, so it's, it's a vitamin K deficiency. Vitamin K1 deficiency is pretty rare. But vitamin K2, people tend to underconsume, and it has different physiologic effects in the body. It helps maintain calcium homeostasis, so it helps deposit calcium into places you want calcium to be, like in your bones and your teeth. And it helps keep it out of soft tissue, which is where calcium actually shouldn't be allowed to, to you know, congregate. Um, so it keeps it out of arteries, kidneys, things like that. Um, and, uh, and vitamin K2 is, is relatively under-consumed because it is found, again, in full-fat dairy. And there's been this push over the past couple of decades to steer consumers to reduced-fat dairy. It tends to be higher in um, dairy products that, are, that come from grass-fed cows. And most of our dairy comes from cows that are not fed grass, right? Uh, it's found in, in organ meats and things like that. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, I think that full fat dairy is a, is a, is a great source of like pretty important, um, potentially important micronutrients like vitamin K too. And then finally, this has been an, uh, uh, an area of interest for me, uh, for me for some time, but full fat dairy contains a compound in it that is unique called milk fat globule membrane. And milk fat globule membrane is sort of like, you can think of it like a capsule that compote, that, that, that encapsulates the triglycerides, the fats that are typically found in dairy. Now dairy is a very, among all foods, dairy has the highest proportion of saturated fat. And yet consumption of, da- of full fat dairy is associated consistently with better cardiometabolic health. It's not associated with higher levels of LDL, higher incidence of cardiovascular disease. But saturated fat typically does raise your levels of, of LDL, which we know when, it, when that gets too high, that's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And so it seems to be that this milk fat globule membrane, it, it basically changes the way our bodies respond to the fat contained by dairy. And it's super interesting, actually. Heavy cream and butter are essentially the same. They start out from the same origin product, like, right? Like butter is heavy cream that's simply been churned. 
But when you churn heavy cream to create butter, you're disrupting the milk fat globule membrane. And so that's why there have been feeding studies where they've shown that when you feed a person heavy cream, there's no impact on their, on their lipids. They don't see an increase in their LDL, right? But when you feed a person butter, you do see an increase in their LDL. So that effect, that response is thought to be attributable to that, that protective effect seems to be attributable to the presence of milk fat globule membrane, which again is this encapsulation of the fats that dairy contains that's made up of uh, proteins, different um, lipid, different phospholipids. And so that got me thinking like, what is the purpose of dairy, right? The purpose of dairy, yeah, it's to grow a, it's to grow a neonate, right? And in the case of bovine dairy, it's to grow a calf into a cow. But what part of the animal is the most rapidly growing part of the animal, especially early on? It's the brain, right? And so when you look at what milk fat globule membrane contains in it, it's rich in phosphatidylcholine, which we know is a really important component of brain cell membranes. It's rich in a compound called sphingomyelin, which is actually a, a core component of myelin, the myelin sheath that acts like insulation for your neurons. And... So, you know, this, I just, I tend to go down like rabbit holes, right? But there was, I looked to see if there was an association between dairy consumption and reduced risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now, an association isn't like a causal connection. It's a correlation. But there was a study that um, the first author was this guy, Oriel Willett, who uh, his work I've been following for some time now because he, he publishes a lot on nutrients as it relates to brain health, which you know is my, my primary passion. And it was a study that involved food, food frequency questionnaires. So we know that these are not the most reliable because people tend to overrepresent on these questionnaires how, how healthy their diet was. They tend to underrepresent um, components, dietary components that are less healthy, healthy user bias, you know. But what they found was that above and beyond every single, every single dietary component, the consumption of dairy was associated with a prote protective effect against cognitive decline. Mm. So, so all that being said, I've sort of become more, uh, more of a fan of, of, of different types of dairy. Um, I still eat it in, in moderation. Like I'll, I'll consume like zero to two servings of, of dairy a day. Uh, and I'm not, again, I'm not lactose intolerant, but I think it is interesting, um, these connections. And I also used to really, I used to, I, I probably used to consume a lot more butter. Um, but I, I butter to me now, I, I, I put it in the category of, I, I, I consider it an indulgence because it lacks, it's been chemically altered and that chemical alteration creates the texture that we know and love and call butter. Right. And I still use it occasionally, like, like here and there, I'm, I'm a, I, I'm overall a fan of butter, but as a, as a health food, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's probably better to put like, it's probably better to stick with, uh, dairy components dairy products that, that still have intact milk fat globule membrane because of all the benefits that that provides. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker. You know, I just turned 40 this year and I can honestly say I've never felt better. So many people have a fear around getting older because they think it has to come with chronic disease and deteriorating mental and physical health. If that were the case, I'd be worried too about getting older, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's possible to get older and stay young at the same time, but sometimes we need a little help to know exactly how to do it. That's why Inside Tracker developed 
Inner Age 2.0. This proprietary AI-driven platform reveals how your body is aging and provides you a personalized, science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. Inside Tracker's new Inner Age test allows you to see how your inner age compares with your chronological age and gives you a longevity-focused plan with science-backed recommendations to help you make sure your best days are still ahead of you. Right now, Inside Tracker is offering my podcast community 20% off. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Drew. That's D-H-R-U to get your discount code and to try it out yourself. That's inside, I-N-S-I-D-E, tracker, T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com slash D-H-R-U for 20% off today. Clean air is a cornerstone for health. We need air in general to survive. We all know that, but we need clean air to get this thrive. It might sound too basic, but honestly, in this industrial age where we are constantly bombarded with toxins, air quality is something we should all be thinking about. Most people at home probably think they're safe from air pollution because they're not outside. But did you know indoor air is usually two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air? living 2,000 feet or less from a major highway, having new furniture or carpets or paints that off-gas, owning pets are just a few of the many things that can dramatically affect the quality of the air inside our homes. The toxins found in polluted air can contribute to everything from cardiovascular disease to neurodegeneration. When I found out how toxic the air in my home and office could be, I started using the Air Doctor Professional Air Purifier and saw noticeable improvements in how I felt. Air Doctor has an ultra HEPA filter that's 100 times more effective than any other ordinary HEPA filter, plus a dual action carbon gas trap VOC filter. So it removes 100% of the particles in the air and the vast majority of volatile organic chemical compounds and gases like formaldehyde and other different chemicals that are lurching in our homes. Air Doctor is the best at-home air purifier that I've found because it combats all the different forms of toxins in our air and in our office, and it can be used in any room in the house without any insulation. I'm excited to share that right now. Air Doctor is offering my community $300 off. Just go to drhyman.com slash filter. That's drhyman, H-Y-M-A-N.com slash filter to get this deal today. Make your home your sanctuary, clean up your air and feel better. It's an easy step towards optimizing your health with Air Doctor. Yeah, super interesting. As we just continue to learn more how people's own individual experimentation, you know, changes. Like I want to like whey so badly. It tastes good. Uh, there's so many great qualities that are out there like goat whey, sheep's whey, you know, all these different types of whey. And I've tried whey in different sorts of ways. And, um, for me again, the, the, my journey and health history started when I had a really bad acne all throughout high school. And then I found out that it was primarily dairy. And again, being South Asian, Indian background, other stuff, there is a lot of dairy consumption there modernly, but does it also do my genetics and background also make me more lactose intolerant, not in the traditional way, but having challenges with lac lactose, who knows, gut microbiome alteration, whatever. So getting off of dairy, my skin cleared up in like two months. Wow. Like I went from being on like Accutane, different gel, all that different stuff. My skin was super bad, cut out all dairy and month and a half, two months, my skin looked as if it was minus scar tissue, looked completely clean. 
So then I thought, man, I have the answer, like dairy's poison, hmm. right? And I would tell people I was vegan at the time. I'd say, you know, this isn't a good situation. Wow. Naturally, then I found the world of functional medicine, started running all my labs and found out that actually, you know, I've been vegan now for like seven years. Like a lot of this stuff isn't working, even though I felt great when I first started doing it. So I started including back in um, targeted food. So I would have a little bit of cheese. So I thought, okay, a little bit of cheese especially like European style cheese. I'm fine. I can enjoy it and I can have it with a little bit of, uh, you know, like dinner or whatever here and there. But in general, I would include dairy. And then recently I saw a couple papers on just um, on, on kefir and how like some people that had challenges. And I was really curious because way I had, I would get pimples again. I'd get a mm. little bit of acne and things like that. And it was pretty much within 24 hours. Then I started having a little bit of goat kefir in the morning, like a, you know, a serving, not every day, every so often. My digestion felt good that morning. Like in, in general, my digestion feel good, feels good, but I didn't have any sort of rumbling. I didn't have any challenges. I felt good. It was satiating. It, it doesn't have any sugar inside of it. So I'd put in, you know, put in a couple berries or some seeds or other stuff. And it's just amazing to see when you've written off a food but you're open, you approach it in an open-minded way as you did with um, you know, the inclusion of dairy back in your diet. You continue to find the, follow the literature and you say, okay, let me, let me try this and see if there's evidence that these studies are saying that this thing could be beneficial. Let me see how I could personalize it for myself. For your case, it was sounds like it was whey. I don't think you ever stopped having whey, right? You always had whey. Yeah, I've always kind of integrated whey to some But degree. more like straight up like dairy or heavy cream is what you've been trying. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's sort of what I, what I started to like reintegrate. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, so I used to, I, I was for a little while doing the butter in my coffee thing, right? which I think is delicious. <laughs> so just, I'll put that out there. I think it's, I actually, I quite enjoy it. Um, however, I carry a genotype that probably puts me at increased risk of hypercholesterolemia. So you know, high, high cholesterol. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not anti-cholesterol or anything like that. I'm sure. a, you know, I'm an advocate of, of, of well-sourced animal consumption, but, um, but I do think it's important to like hedge your bets, you know, and to, and to always do labs and to get tested and to be willing to iterate to always, you know, I don't, I don't wear my personal diet, my dietary pattern as an identity. Right. I think that's where people, um, tend to go astray, especially today when they make their diet, their identity, because then they become unwilling to iterate when new data presents itself or when they get labs and those labs don't necessarily agree with the picture of. Sure. They planted a flag in the ground. They planted the flag in the ground. Exactly. Um, so for me, I, I don't want to cause an undue elevation of my LDL levels when, when, when there's no really benefit in doing so. We know that saturated certain saturated fats, and I and I talk about this in the book, do elevate LDL, right? The, sure. the, the way that they do is they reduce the availability of the LDL receptor on the surface of the liver, which is really important for recycling those LDL particles, right? Um, certain genotypes are not as efficient at that, and I'm probably one of those one of those people. I'm definitely one of those people. Okay. Yeah. So. And this is interesting because uh, I, I recently brought coffee back into my diet, and I want to I want to bring up why coffee could be ben very particularly beneficial to people like yeah, us. Yeah, let's talk about it. But um but with something like grass-fed beef, 
So with every food, there are risks and there are benefits. It's my perspective based on, on data that the benefits of eating grass-fed beef outweigh any risks because you're getting a highly nutrient-dense food with pr a pristine source of protein. You're getting compounds like creatine, which we know um, is, is reduced in the brain as we get older. Um, vitamin E, tiny amount of omega-3 fats, but you know, sig significant nonetheless. But uh, mixing butter in my coffee, especially with regard to the milk fat globule membrane aspect that I mentioned earlier, it's probably going to cause your LDL to go up. And there's really no benefit that you're getting other than the fact that it's like delicious, right? Also MCT oil. MCT oil. Right. Yeah. Any kind of that sort of heavy dose saturated fat. Yeah. Um, MCT oil, I'm not, I'm not sure does that. Uh, it, I'm. I can tell you for me, it, it does. Did that. Okay. It did that. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's good to know. Yeah. So I'm not, so I don't, so I didn't necessarily want that to happen to me, but then I found these studies that found that heavy cream basically gives you the same, I mean, it's a dairy fat, you don't have to blend it. So that's like a great benefit of doing that. Um, and it, and because it has intact milk fat globule membrane, according to the data, it's not going to cause this, like this elevation of, uh, of LDL. So I'm getting this, I'm essentially getting the same product the same end product, which is like a creamy, indulgent, unctuous cup of coffee, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, without but with like a, a, a chemical difference that's that might be physiologically significant for me. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's always about that experimentation. Talking about labs, like how often do you personally, will you look at your labs, especially with this, uh, you know? history of high cholesterol or other stuff, or just looking at any sort of, you know, markers that are there, how often will you get your labs done? Yeah. I mean, I try to do it. I try to do it once a year. And, um, and my family, I mean, people know my family history. My, my mother had very poor health. She had, she had this rare form of dementia that developed when she was very young. And we know that vascular changes occur before almost every other change with regard to, um, Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia and certainly vascular dementia. So, um, so cardiovascular health is crucially important and it's something that I'm, that I'm always mindful of. Uh, and, and again, every food has a, has a benefit and a risk. Coffee, I think is really interesting from this standpoint. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. So coffee is something that it's the world's most commonly consumed drug, right? It's a, it's a, it's a psychoactive drug. I love it. Um, but I found at a certain point that coffee was starting to make me, starting to give me that tired and wired feeling. Um, and so I took it out for a while and I felt great. This is another reason that I think many people feel shitty all the time, right? Because they, they are dependent on this drug that, um, that they need to consume in order to treat their withdrawal from it, that they're experiencing due to a 24 hour deficit of caffeine. Right. And so for most people, when they consume coffee, they're not actually experiencing a performance boost above their baseline levels of performance. They're dependent on it. So they need to consume coffee to get back to their baseline level of performance. So for people who are not regular coffee drinkers, caffeine does provide a performance boosting effect. But for people who are chronic coffee drinkers, dependent on coffee, that caffeine is just, you're, you're, you need that morning cup because you're, because you're going to feel the, the unpleasant symptoms of withdrawal without it. And the other aspect of coffee that I think most people are not aware of is that coffee doesn't, coffee does give you an energy boost, but it doesn't create energy from thin air. It borrows it from later. And that's a debt that's going to be repaid later in the day. So that's what I was feeling personally when I was drinking coffee first thing in the morning. 
I would end up feeling like a train hit me by two, three in the afternoon, mm. oftentimes leading me to the coffee pot to get some more coffee. And that was starting to just disrupt my sleep. And so I took coffee out to resensitize my brain to it. And then I brought it back in so that now I can consume it at the minimal effective dose for me. And I love it. I drink it. I drink it now um, every day. But what were you having before and how does that compare now? Was it just that you were having the quantity or just was that you didn't take a break enough for your body to reset? I was having probably too much. So I was, the dose was probably too high for me. Which would be what? Um, well, I know that I was in my coffee uh, French press that I was using. I was putting probably like four or five tablespoons mm -hmm. of grounds into that French press, which is probably like three, 400, if not more, milligrams of caffeine. And I was also drinking it first thing in the morning, which you don't typically want to do because coffee, caffeine can cause an elevation of cortisol levels. But first thing in the morning, your cortisol levels are already the highest that they're going to be all day mm -hmm. because of the diurnal cortisol pattern. Cortisol is your body's waking hormone. It's what gets you out of bed. So once I started to, I took coffee out first to kind of press the reset button. And then I brought it back at a much lower dose. And I try to the, to the best of my ability to drink it 45 minutes after I wake up to an hour after I wake up so that that cortisol spike starts to come down. The other thing that I did was... The other great thing about that is it forces you to drink water first thing in the morning. Oh, yeah. Which is also, I think, on one of your posts here or there, you know, people go to caffeine first. Right. And then it's like, well, coffee's made out of water, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah. That's the first liquid that they have in the day. So they're already dehydrated waking up. Their cortisol is already high. And they're drinking something that's making them more dehydrated first thing in the morning. So sorry to interrupt, but that's another thing that you get for delaying coffee a little bit is you get to sneak in that water and make sure that that's the first thing that you have in the morning. That's a great, I mean, that's a great point. People, uh, with, when trying to set healthy new habits, you want a habit stack. And so giving yourself that, that extra time in the morning and, and, and throwing in some new habits in it. Cause you know, you've got your coffee habit coming up. But that's a great opportunity to, yeah, to like to drink some water, hydrate, maybe put some like some electrolytes into the mix. Um, but so, yeah, so, so I brought it back. And also uh, I learned a few things about how to make coffee healthier. So for one, I was French pressing my coffee, as I mentioned. When you, um, coffee has a compound in it called cafe stall, which is sort of a double-edged sword. It's a, it's a compound that has been shown to in, improve insulin sensitivity, but powerfully also raise levels of LDL cholesterol. And when you use a paper filter, the paper filter absorbs all of that compound, all of that cafe stall, whereas a French press doesn't absorb any of it. So if you French press your coffee and you're prone to hypercholesterolemia, maybe you have high cholesterol, you want to get rid of the French press and use a pour over or a coffee machine or whatever, just something that, that utilizes a paper filter, which absorbs almost all of that cafe stall compound, which again is one of the most powerful, powerful, it's one of the most powerfully known, um, elevators of LDL cholesterol in humans. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it does this, I forget how it does it actually. I think it might have something to do with reducing again, availability of the, of the LDL receptor, this, this one compound. 
Um, but you absorb nearly all of it with, with just a paper filter. So I got rid of my French press and now I'm using a pour over where I have a, a, an unbleached paper filter that I use. And I know that that is actually helpful. That is going to have a meaningful impact, right? Wow. Yeah. I'm, I make an espresso in the morning. I wonder if I can make that espresso. My friend gifted me a little wedding present and it's like, I'm going on one of those nice Italian machines yeah. condensed. I wonder if I could pour that through a, a paper filter afterwards. Maybe. Yeah, it would. <laughs> It would potentially help. And you think it makes that much of a difference? I do. I do. Yeah. With a French press, you're, you're getting about, I believe it's like six milligrams of this, of this cafe stall compound. People can look it up. You can easily Google cafe stall. I'm not, I'm not making it up. It's a, it's a compound in coffee that's fully absorbed by the paper filter. I think after using a paper filter, you get about 0.2 milligrams or something. It's like a dramatic reduction, uh, of cafe stall yield in the cup. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's enough to, to have a significant effect. Um, but the other thing that coffee was recently and caffeine specifically has been found to do, which is actually a, a really positive thing is it was found that caffeine is a natural PCSK9 inhibitor. Mm -hmm. There's a new class of cholesterol lowering drugs on the market that are called PCSK9 inhibitors. So most people are familiar with statins, statins reduce the ability of your liver to synthesize cholesterol. Um, but PCSK9 inhibitors, the way they work is they increase by inhibiting this protein, PCSK9, they um, cause an increase in the availability of this LDL receptor, which is really great for helping to pick up these remnant LDL particles that have been sent out in circulation after they do their job of dropping off cholesterol and triglycerides all around the body. The, the liver its job is to pick those, those remnant lipoprotein particles up, right? Before they have the chance to get small and dense. Cause I'm sure you've talked about the difference between large and fluffy LDL particles and small and dense part the more, an L, the longer an LDL particle spends in circulation, the, the smaller and denser it's going to get. Yep. So we want to do everything we can to optimize the efficiency of our livers for recycling LDL. Um, and this is true. This, true for everybody, but it's certainly true for people with specific genotypes, um, mine included. So caffeine was shown in this study that was, that just came out to inhibit PCSK9 by about 25%. I believe the dose was something like, I believe it was 400 milligrams of caffeine, which is quite a bit of caffeine. So I'm not recommending such high a dose, but it is cool to know that via this mechanism, coffee can actually increase the efficiency of your liver to recycle these LDL lipoproteins, mm. which is really, which is great, right? It's great. Yeah. Cause coffee has been consistently, coffee consumption observationally has been consistently associated with reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, for certain neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, MS, all these things. But it's like, is there a mechanism that could, that could explain that, right? Sure. And this is a pretty, pretty significant, um, uh, mechanism. Pretty, pretty plausible. How much do you think, I mean, we, we know, uh, we know all the research that's out there on LDL and we've done episodes on and other stuff, but how much do you think is when people talk about elevated levels of LDL? And then of course, you know, people can always get like an NMR test and look at the actual particle sides build up, you know, do they have the right amount of, you know, do they have a lot of small dense ones, which you talked about and why they're problematic? Do you have big and fluffy ones and it's not as much of an issue and everything when it comes to the cholesterol and lipids conversation? How much of 
the conversation around LDLs, do you think is the association of LDLs with people who have just tend to have very inflammatory diets, a lot of processed sugar, other stuff. And, you know, what would be a great study that you'd like to see when it came to people like me and you who typically don't eat a lot of processed foods and might have a tendency to lean towards higher LDL? Would you, well, yeah, what would be a study that you'd like to see that would give you more information about just how worried should we be about it? Um, but again, we want to try to hedge our bets, but yeah, what would be a study? I'd be curious if you have a take on that. Yeah, I just, I think that, I think that with regard to the foods that we know that can potentially raise LDL, we have to ask ourselves, do the, do the benefits outweigh the risks? And for foods like, um, grass-fed beef, uh, any animal product, I mean, you know, even, even wild salmon, um, Fatty fish in general, which is associated with better cardiovascular health, has saturated fat in it. So we can't demonize a single nutrient in isolation. That makes no sense to do that. And also, even when we say saturated fat, there are different kinds of saturated fatty acids. There is myristic acid. There is palmitic acid. There is stearic acid, right? They all have different effects on the body. So if you're just saying saturated fat is bad, you to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, you don't sound like you know what you're talking about because stearic acid, for example, has a neutral effect on lipids like LDL and in fact could actually p potentially play a, um, a positive role for health. It's been shown to boost mitochondrial function, for example, right? When you take a cow and you feed a cow grass for the entirety of its life, you're going to see a higher proportion of stearic acid, which again is from a cardiovascular standpoint, totally neutral, if not healthy. Um, you're going to see less overall saturated fat. You're going to see more omega-3s. And so the benefits, I think, of eating that food outweighs any risk. The benefits of eating fish today still seem to outweigh any risks. Breast milk, right, is loaded with saturated fat. It's one of the perfect foods that nature has devised to, to grow a developing brain, right? Um, so... I don't think, I think when we take a food centric approach, I mean, that, that really to me is, um, that ultimately answers the question of, of how much value do I place on LDL? I think if you're eating an overall healthy dietary pattern that is primarily constituted with minimally processed foods, um, and you're not overdoing it with butter, which is a, dairy is a, is nature's creation, right? But butter is a man-made creation. So certain genotypes I think don't do as well with, with butter. Um, also ghee, ghee is a derivative of butter. Ghee has, and I think ghee is, is great in certain recipes. I certainly use it. It's a very, it's very, uh, stable at high temperatures. Um, but ghee is basically butter, but then you have the added effect of having, uh, a high prevalence of oxidized cholesterol in it. Um, which, I don't think is necessarily great to, to overconsume. Um, so I tend to, I take, a, I tend to take a food centric approach and, and optimize like the diet. And then if everything else was good on my labs and then I saw my LDL was in the, you know, maybe the high normal range. Um, I personally wouldn't be, I wouldn't medicate myself based on that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too, um, concerned. I'll caveat that by saying I'm not a medical doctor, but, um, but I personally would not be, you know, if my, if, if, if my overall metabolic health was good 
if I didn't have an oversized waistline, if my A1C was nice and low, if my blood pressure was nice and healthy, my fasting insulin, my fasting blood sugar were low, my HDL was was high, my triglycerides were low, um, and my LDL was maybe 130 or something like that, which is probably above what the guidelines would would call pristine, I would I would probably be fine with that. Because there are consequences to cutting out foods that that I would have to cut out to get that pristine LDL, right? I would have to cut out the grass-fed beef. I would have to um, maybe eat a lower overall fat diet, right? Which we know can reduce levels of testosterone, which provides many benefits, uh, well-being, libido, body composition. So treating based on just a, uh, on just an isolated number, I don't think makes any, makes any sense. Let's pivot for a second. You know, we talked a lot about fat. We talked about dairy, talked about oils. What is another category of food that you took on in your new cookbook? Link is in the show notes for everybody who's listening. What's a new, what's a category of foods that you wrote about where maybe you have a little bit of a different take than, um, some of the common, uh, thought process or trends that are out there when it comes to that category? Oh man, there's so, so many. I mean, I talk about salt quite a bit. I Let's think, talk about salt. Yeah, I think salt's really important. Um, I, most, the, the vast majority of salt, sodium that your average American consumes comes from restaurant food, fast food, and ultra processed foods, uh, and also canned foods. And I think that the reason for that is, well, there are a few reasons, but when you make a shelf-stable food, you're losing some of the taste uh, condoning qualities of volatile organic compounds that are best when fresh. One of the reasons why fresh food is so much tends to be so much tastier than than preserved food, canned food. And so, to compensate, manufacturers will often add sodium to uh, to these products. And I mean, I think that that's a big problem. I, no, no we're, we tend not to underconsume sodium. Most Americans are consuming lots and lots of sodium, but only because they're consuming lots and lots of these ultra-processed products. But when you take those products out, it's important to realize that only 11% of the sodium that people consume every day come from their own salt shakers, come from the, the salt that they add to recipes that they're making, for example. And so for people who are working to optimize their diets, which I know is a, a significant portion of, of the people who listen to this show, it becomes then a question of like, where are you getting your salt from? Because sodium is a macro mineral. We need it for good health. Um, especially, you know, as you get older, a lot of people, a lot of uh, older adults suffer from hyponatremia. They're not getting enough sodium. Um, and sodium is really important for nerve signal transduction, really important for maintaining healthy blood volume. If you sweat regularly, which I do because I love using saunas, I, I exercise fairly regularly, you need to actually increase the amount of sodium that you're consuming. Also, if you are on a low carbohydrate diet, you tend to require more sodium. A lot of people that are transitioning to a low carb diet for the first time will experience what's called the low carb flu, which can be um, mitigated by including uh, more sodium um, into one's diet. So I think that salt is a, a really important, well, sodium is an important nutrient. And then from a culinary standpoint, I think salt is just, it's, it's, the easiest way to take an ingredient and turn it into food. You know what I'm saying? Like if you have a ribeye, for example, it's not a steak until you add salt to it. It's when you have vegetables, some of the incredibly healthful 
life supportive vegetables in in the in the produce section of the supermarket if you're not adding salt and seasoning those vegetables well you're not going to be able to convince your kids to eat them you're not going to enjoy eating them i actually think this is my own hypothesis but this is one of the reasons why so many people are now adopting these these carnivore diets cuz these are people who as children just didn't have well seasoned seasoned vegetables and i was lucky i grew up my mother was really good. I mean, she loved, you know, seasoning vegetables. She would throw salt, garlic, pepper. Um, we didn't use a lot of butter in my house growing up because my mom, she was big on the on the vegetable oil and the margarines and stuff like that because she was actually afraid of heart disease. So we, I grew up eating um, those kinds of fake fats. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think salt is an incredibly important um, culinary staple to elevate the quality of your food. In the book, I talk about the different kinds of salt. You have fine salt, coarse salt, and flake salt. Flake salt to me is something that if you don't have it in your kitchen, it's one of the easiest ways to elevate the quality of your food to restaurant quality. It's it's super inexpensive, but just finishing your dishes with a little bit of flake salt to me is like one of the best, one of the best finishing moves to impress guests, friends, family. It's really, really, really important. Um, so yeah, sodium was one of those things that I think people people misunderstand. There was there's there's been a number of studies that have come out showing that sodium's impact. So with regard to the to the health aspect of sodium, there is a small portion of the population that is uh sodium sensitive. Um those people tend to be in the minority. I bet it's I I, th- I think it's about 25%. Um obviously people with hypertension, uh the proportion is going to be a bit higher. But um but most people are not responsive to sto- to sodium from the standpoint of their blood pressure. And I think that's really, really important that for most people, sodium doesn't really play, doesn't really have an impact in terms of your blood pressure. Other, other things do. So we were talking about added sugar, right? Added sugar plays a, a huge role in, I think the hypertension epidemic. There was one study that found that one single sugar sweetened beverage raised, uh, subjects systolic blood pressure for two hours after ingestion and we're just we're it was actually the same amount of sugar in that beverage as people are consuming all day every day on average even uh fructose like just straight up fruit juice just straight up orange juice if somebody's starting every morning off with orange juice we had dr richard johnson on the podcast and he's got a new book out and he was the researcher that uh um really understood the link between you know, uric acid and why it got so important and led to David Perlmutter's book and other people's books that are out there. He's done a lot of studies and in the space of hypertension. And originally, of course, you know, talking about concentrated salt being an issue for people. And again, putting in the caveat that most of it's going to come from the food that we get outside, the processed food, the restaurants, the other stuff, people that add salt to it. But he actually found and ended up going because, you know, he's a nephrologist, kidney Hmm. doctor. Kind of going from just salt to now looking at when you have concentrated forms of fructose, how that impacts hypertension in patients, and was able to with concentrated sorts of fructose in in mice, and uh, and and later seeing in observational studies with you know human beings that you can induce uh, high blood pressure just by giving people like strong amounts of 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 fructose in their diet. Wow. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not surprising when you feed somebody a a huge bolus of sugar. It, it stimulates their their sympathetic nervous system, which is like their fight or flight response, which is like you know your blood your 
your blood pressure increases. Um, so I think that that's a bigger problem. And, and obviously refined grains play a role there as well because refined grains break down almost instantly to sugar, whether or not it appears like sugar. It, it biologically um, is, is no different. Um, and so f- with regard to sodium, I think it's the, the hype is, is the, 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 the danger signal is definitely, um, overblown. Now the consumption of potassium also plays a role in helping balance out the effects that the effect that sodium has on your blood pressure. So making sure that you're eating a healthy diet, um, I think researchers believe that we used to consume about four times as much potassium as hunter-gatherers as we do now. And potassium could be found in fruits and vegetables are loaded with potassium, but also uh, most people aren't aware, but wild salmon and beef are actually very good sources of potassium. Um, Much higher in terms of their potassium content than their natural sodium content. So making sure that you're getting uh, potassium in, in a, in a, on a daily basis, I think is, is really helpful. And again, cutting out the ultra processed foods because these, this advice to stop adding salt to your food is just completely misguided. It's really, it's really bad advice because people are just, they're making their food more bland. They, the, some of the most healthy foods in the supermarket are not, are simply not palatable without the addition of salt. And the number one source of dietary sodium in the American diet, you would think that it would be like, processed meat or canned foods. It's not, it's bread and rolls. But when was the last time you heard a dietitian tell you to avoid bread and rolls, right? To get your blood pressure in check. You'll never hear that, right? They say, limit your salt intake. And so what do most people do? They stop using, they, they shun the salt shaker. Mm. It's so misguided. It's so backwards. I want to go back to that post that I had referenced. You know, we're interweaving uh, why do I feel shady all the time on top of the, the, the pack of, uh, the new book and kind of highlighting out different things in both sides that contribute to people not feeling great and what we do to, um, optimize. So I want to shift off of, uh, off of food topics for a second, and I'm going to read you back out the list and give me a couple of those that you might just want to go through a quick rant on. Okay. How's yeah. that sound? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So we talked about ultra processed foods. That was number one, zero exercise, sitting all day. Poor posture, too much alcohol. We talked about the caffeine one, too much caffeine. Sun plus nature deprived, crappy sleep, and overuse, I'm guessing, of social media. You just have social media, but I'm guessing you mean overuse of social media. Give me one of those that you might want to toss out a little rant on. Oh, man. Well, I think sitting sitting all day is a big problem. When When you're sedentary for an extended period of time, blood literally drains from your brain. I mean, just think about it that way. Like you're sitting, your brain is at the top of your body, right? Blood literally drains, and by just integrating a little bit of movement, you help reperfuse the brain for all intents and purposes. And all it takes is just a few minutes of walking around. If you're if you're stuck at a desk for every half an hour of seated time, go up and walk around for two minutes. That's all. That's literally all it takes. I anecdotally, I tend to find myself prone to headaches when I'm when I'm sitting for an extended period of time. Um, but we know that the brain thrives when the body is is moving. Um, and that it suffers when we are when we're sitting all day. I mean, it's like blood. Our, our, our bodies literally serve, in effect, as a pump to get blood up to the brain. Right? I mean, yeah, we have our heart, but the brain is is affected by what goes on down below. There was a really interesting study that came out a few years ago, um, 
it was fascinating. That found that just being underwater with your head out, that the pressure that being underwater puts on your body increased cerebral perfusion by mm. about 14% or something like that. So movement is so key, right? And, uh, and I, I think that's one of the major reasons why people tend to feel crappy today is that they're, they're, they're just overly sedentary. I mean, we know that when you exercise, and by the way, there's, there are different kinds of movement. There's exercise, which underneath the umbrella of exercise, you've got your anaerobic and your aerobic exercise, um, which we could break apart. But then non-exercise physical activity, I think, is probably the most important because it's, it's just the daily movements that we do all day that we don't necessarily count as exercise, but that plays such a huge role in terms of fostering metabolic health, keeping fresh blood, oxygen, nutrients flowing up to the brain. And that can be anything from dancing to taking the stairs to going on a walk to, I mean, technically even tapping your foot is non-exercise. Fidgeting, for example, is non-exercise physical activity. Doing chores around the house, laundry, chasing your cat, which I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes, um, all, all of these play an, an, an important role. And then exercise, we know anaerobic exercise, whether it's weight training or high intensity interval training, really important for, for, um, gaining for, for, for correcting metabolic illness, for becoming more resilient, for improving cardiorespiratory fitness, which is all so related to living a longer life with greater health span, aerobic exercise for, again, cardiorespiratory fitness plays an, an, an important role in reducing risk of early mortality. So yeah, being, being as active as you can, right? And, and for me, my level of high intensity, quote unquote, exercising be different from yours, right? Because I've been working out, for example, my whole life. I don't necessarily look like it, but <laughs> I've been working out for 25 years at this point. So what's high intensity for me is going to be different than what it is for you. So you can't, we can't compare, you know, from individual to individual and, 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 um, and, and make those sorts of, uh, comparisons. But as long as you're giving it your best, um, and doing the best that you can for you, given your fitness levels, given your age, given your, uh, ability that whatever constructs and constraints that you have in your life you have to do that because that's i think i mean when it comes to the brain exercise is medicine <laughs>